Father, um, your word sometimes is, uh, is uh, at least on the outside, very, very hard to us, hard for us to understand. And um, we, we, Father, we know you, we trust you, we, we know that your son died on the cross for us, uh, that he died out of love for us. We understand, Father, that every part of the Bible points to your son's death upon the cross and that your son's death upon the cross points to every part of the Bible and makes it clear. So we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would gently but deeply fall upon us this morning. Make us disciples gripped by that gospel so that we will live for your glory. And this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Um, this, uh, this week I had a Yet another interesting conversation in a coffee shop. Uh, there's this fellow who um, who sees all the time. He's he's we've talked a few times. He's a he's a, a devout atheist, a sort of an aggressive atheist, uh, and we've had a few uh, conversations around that, uh, just short ones in the Starbucks. Uh, but this week he paused and uh, and he said, you know, every day I I come into this Starbucks and I see you. He doesn't see me every day, but every day I come in, you're always reading these really big fat books. And studying, like, like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to prepare for my sermon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He said, do you read like other books? <laughs> like, do you just just read the Bible and books connected to the Bible? I said, no, no, I read a couple of newspapers most days. I read a novel a week, sort of on average. I, you know, watch movies and television, and that sort of reassured him <laughs> that I was at least vaguely normal. Um, and we had a little bit of a conversation about his expectations of what, what people would be like who, who read the Bible. But um, one of the things, so uh, I, one of the things I've noticed just this past week, I've noticed it for quite a while, but it really struck me, uh, two different things on television uh, one, that I've watched this week. The first one is on The Amazing Race. I don't know how many of you watch The Amazing Race. I'm the main one in my family who likes watching it. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed this year is uh, the amount of prayer on The Amazing Race. And, um, and before you maybe get all excited and think that The Amazing Race is turning into some type of a Christian show, um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's very, very curious because it's always a very type of, um, and obviously, you know, in The Amazing Race, they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. Uh, if you don't know what it is, it's a group of teams that are on a race around the world, and it's sort of everywhere they go, they have to, they get a, a, a something that tells them where they have to go, and they have to complete some task, and as you make each stage or don't make it, you get eliminated until there's one team left that wins a million dollars, and that's how it works. So, but it's amazing some people who, um, and, and their, their prayers seem to be highly, highly, highly utilitarian, uh, not in terms of Jesus. I mean, they might mention Jesus, but often it's just God, and it's often really very focused to help them get a particular task. And when I watch it, it's always very hard to figure out what on earth is sort of going on with them, that uh, it, it almost seems as if, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later, that uh, the God that exists is a God that meets, comes to, exists just to meet their needs. And that's often what it seems to come across when you watch all of the show and, and just see the way they relate to each other and the way they talk. Um, another thing which happened just, I think, within the last week on prayer, I also watched this TV a series of BBC movies called Wallander. And um, I think they're really superbly acted. Uh, it's all about a Swedish police detective. And uh, in one of the older episodes that I was watching this week on Netflix, um, it was the episode after he had done a particular tragedy. I'm not going to tell you what, what it is in case you watch the series, so I don't give any spoiler alerts. 
but a particular tragedy had befell him, and uh, he had gone through a, a, a deep period of uh, darkness, trying to come to terms uh, with how it was that he was able to do something like that. And he's having a conversation with a, another a police officer, former police officer, and the police officer asks him, did you pray? Do you ever pray? And um, if I was a, a really cool pastor of a big mega church at this point in time, this is where I would have it up on the screen, uh, just as I would have some of these utilitarian prayers from the Amazing Race on the screen, I'd have this Wallander moment uh, where he perfectly responds with a look of complete, he's just completely and utterly incredulous, and he says to the cop, who asks him if he prays, he says, like, why on earth would I do that? Like, why on earth would I do that? <laughs> Even though he's wrestling with the fact that he'd uh, done something quite horrible, <laughs> uh, and it's been quite a shock to him that he would do something that was so, at least that he understood as being horrible. Now, I'm obviously not a very, very cool pastor, because not only do I not have the video clip up there, uh, but today we're looking at Revelation 16 and the seven bulls of the wrath of God, which is not particularly what cool pastors would talk about. But it would be very helpful if you turned to Revelation 16. And uh, Revelation 16, which we, we could look at uh, just all about end time things, and I'll make a little bit of a passing reference to it. But Revelation 16 is a, a very, very interesting reflection on how it is that we live our lives, how is it that we deal with things that we've done that sort of horrify ourselves about ourselves? How is it that we fit in prayer, whether it's utilitarian or otherwise, or whether it's even worth our time to pray? And Revelation 16 is actually, uh, when you sort of take some time, get over the shocking imagery in it, and spend some time uh, looking at it and allowing the text, asking the question text and letting the question ask us text, is actually a very, very a profound uh, introduction to how it is that, in fact, in fact, we structure and people structure our lives. So Revelation 16, if you're a, a, a guest here, not familiar with the Bible, it's the last book in the Bible, should be easy to find, chapter 16, and here's how it begins. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now just sort of uh, pause right here. Um, here's uh, sort of my first point, if you could put it up, Andrew. And uh, today I, I, I have sort of more talking points than I usually do in my sermon, and apologize that they're not in the notes, but if you go on the webpage, I think tomorrow, uh, if you don't have time, if those of you take notes, they'll, they'll be on the webpage. And, and here's the first thing to observe. Because he loves us, the living God warns us of the world's last night. I get that imagery from C.S. Lewis uh, in an essay that he wrote once. Because he loves us, the living God warns us of the world's last night. And so what's happening here, if, if you're familiar with the flow of the book, is that we have a series of judgments. And um, if, if you go back and look at them, there were a series of seven judgments earlier on in the book where everyone, uh, many of them led to a quarter of the earth being touched. And then... There is uh, a little bit later a series of seven judgments that involve a third of the world being touched. And now this is the last cycle of judgments, and in these judgments, uh, all of the world is touched. In fact, actually, uh, I'm, not going to, um, I'm not going to talk about it today other than just to sort of point something out that this, 
this series of judgments is different than the other two. Um, as we get deeper into the text, you'll see that in, in, this, uh, in this series of judgments, the only people who are affected by it are people who are in rebellion against God. So if, if you were doing a series of talks in the book of Revelation where you were concerned all about end-time events, uh, this is a, the sort of time when you try to fit in the rapture or the tribulation and all that type of stuff. And I'm, not, I'm just going to mention that that's a feature of the text. I'm not going to actually talk about it very much, but I wanted you to notice it. And, and the reason I want you to notice it will be, will be, be familiar in, in a moment. In, in, well, the reason I want you to notice it is this, that all the way through these, um, these uh, bowl visions of what happens, um, th- these are ones that are, in a sense, talking about the world's last night, the end of the end of, of our created order before God brings in a new created order and there's a last judgment. And, and all of the other different um, cycles of judgment, we can understand that on one hand they're pointing to something in the future, but also on one hand they're talking about something which happens right now. But this series really is talking primarily about the end, but it's talking about the end in a way which is highly relevant to right now. And, and so it's going to be very, very hard and I'm not going to attempt to do it. I'm not going to ha- attempt to try to figure out what part of these images are, are symbolic and what are, uh, of the parts of the image are literal, because frankly, how could I possibly know the answer to that question? And frankly, how could anybody possibly know the answer to that question? The important thing is to remember what's said, so that if by chance, or if by providence, I should say, we are there as the world's last night finally arrives, if we are familiar with the text, then we can notice and understand what's happening. And so that's going to be my focus on it, because the focus is on how shall we then live? How shall we then live in light of the text? And so in all of these series of judgment visions, these seven... It's underst- what we need to understand is that God is, uh, has this written for us because he loves us and because he wants to begin a conversation with us in light of them. Um, it's upsetting to many of us because we don't really understand. In our age, we increasingly don't understand what conversations are. Uh, we're more familiar with negotiations <laughs> that in relationships... Often, we're not really trying to have a conversation with another person to know the other person. We're trying to negotiate what we want them to do <laughs> or we want what we want them to allow us to do. Uh, and, and this text, God is not interested in having a negotiation with us, <laughs> but he is very interested in having a conversation with us. And so this text, like all of Scripture, every single word of Scripture is an invitation from God for you and me to have a conversation with him. And that's what's happening here. And so because he loves us, because he loves us, the living God warns us of the world's last night. And that's what these visions, visions are going to be out, uh, all about. Now, some of you might say, uh, George, you know, okay, so I know you're going to sort of, I've heard that you're going to go through the text and we're going to, you're going to talk about each, each verse here, or at least read it and say a few things about it. But I remember a few things about what Jeremy read, and, and while you've been talking, I've been sort of reading ahead a little bit, but, oh, George, come on. Like, this text is so out of step with Canada. 
Like, this text is so out of step with Canada, and it, it's so out of, text, out of touch with spirituality. Like, it just sounds like doom and gloom religion. Like, I, I don't even quite know why, why to bother with it. It just seems to be so completely and utterly out of step with how us modern or postmodern people understand and process and, and, and the, the language. Just, it's out of step, George. And um, if any of you thought that, that's a really good thought because, because it is. <laughs> it is. But the question is, what, what is the text trying to do? And is it, in fact, opening up to us an area of conversation that many in our modern world are completely and utterly missing? Well, let's, let's continue reading, and we'll start to see. So verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its name. Just pause. You'll notice um, the mark of the beast in, in a couple of the earlier sermons where the mark of the beast and all was mentioned. What, what this means is these are people who the mark of the beast shows that they've pledged their allegiance to the beast, which is sort of like a false god, part of the false trinity. And they've pledged their allegiance to this, the beast, and they worship him. And, and notice that it just, these swords just fall on, on them. That's what I mean by, and we're not gonna, I'm not going to talk about that. In, I, I don't know what that's going to mean when the world's last night happened. I, I don't know what it means, but you, you, can, you should see it and know it, right? And then the, third, the next verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, just sort of pause there for a second. <laughs> this is uh, not a very positive text, eh? If you, <laughs> at least not on the surface. Here's one of the things, you know, if, if you go to a church that just wants to give you a positive hour-and-a-half vibe every Sunday, then it, it usually means that it's not actually going to try to, to touch us at a deeper level. And texts like this that are more angular and pointy, they, they touch us at a deeper level. And if, if we allow them, if we spend some time with them, they, they start to penetrate into how we actually see the world and understand the world and what it is that God is inviting us into a conversation about and where that conversation could end up, end up going. And, and here's, uh, here's the thing. If you could put up this next point, and I'll try to explain what it means. It sounds a little bit funny, but I think it's an important point, and it comes out in how strange and different the text is from what we would expect as Canadians a spiritual text to be. And here it is, that meeting with the living God is not meeting myself. Meeting with the living God is not meeting myself. Much of contemporary spirituality is really about meeting yourself. Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying that it's every single person who meditates and every single person who does yoga and every single person who does a, spirit, a, a series of, of self-help seminars, etc. I'm not saying that every single person who does it is, is doing this. But I, I, and whether it's recognized or not, a lot of what happens, whether it's through exercise or through yoga or time in the wilderness is actually just an opportunity for a person to meet themselves and discover how wonderful they are. And I'm not saying that to belittle 
because, but it is that somehow or nothing in our culture, I, I was really struck on the Saturday paper. To, I, I read the National, I looked at the National Post and, and, the, and the Citizen, and, um, and, and here the National Post would be sort of understood in po- popular parlance as a right-wing paper, whatever that means in Canada, and, uh, and the Citizen is sort of a bit more left-wing or centrist, and I'm not going to get into a debate as whether which is right, which is left. What, but here's the thing. In both of them, they had lots of things about uh, retreats, about mindfulness, about yoga retreats, uh, about a, a whole series of things. And it's not only been on, on the Saturday paper, but all this week there's been a series of things about it. And you know, I, I read it because I'm, I'm curious to try to figure out what it, how, how people think, right? How do people think? And it really struck me that at the heart of it, at the heart of it, and, and, and you can, I, I can understand, because I'm a Canadian, I breathe Canadian air, and I can understand the pull and the draw and the attraction of it, but it's really all a, spirit, a series of spiritual practices that will, I mean, will obviously help you to be more healthy or calm, etc. There's a utilitarian aspect to it. But the God that you meet is yourself. The encounter you have is with yourself. And, and, and so when we're used to looking at spiritual texts, if, 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 you, if you were to go and, and maybe in the coffee shop or your office or your neighborhood and people are all excited about the, 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 a new thing that looks really encouraging, and, and if, if you maybe think about it, I'm just throwing it out there, you can think about it, but is, is it really ultimately at the day just some different way to meet yourself? And if that's what gets Canadians excited and, and we come to this text, and this text is not like this at all, why? Because this text is implying, not implying, is saying that there is a living God who's completely and utterly other and different than you and I. I mean, there's other texts here which talk about how close the living God is to us, close, so close to us that we, we can sometimes mistake ourselves for him. But it fundamentally is talking about the complete and utter difference of God and how different he is. And it's a conversation not with myself. The Bible's not inviting me into having a conversation with myself. The Bible's inviting me to have a conversation and know the living God who's completely and utterly other. And that's why the text is like this. I've been married for a very long time now, not long enough. <laughs> I'm looking forward to being married to Louise for a long time, unless Jesus comes back first. And, and, um, but, you know, and so it's been a long time. But you know, there, there, here, here's the thing. When, when you're single... Maybe this is just a single guy thing. I don't know. But it's easy to imagine the ideal wife, the ideal girlfriend. And it's easy to think about the ideal wife, the ideal girlfriend. Ideal wife and girlfriend never tells you you've done something wrong. You've hurt her feelings. You've ignored her. You've been lazy. You've been (laughs) self-centered. I don't know, maybe your ideal girlfriends were very different <laughs> than mine. <laughs> and then you meet a real person. And, uh, and they're angular. By, that, by angular, it means is they, you know, they have pointy bits that aren't bad pointy bits. They have bad pointy bits just like yourself. I mean, that's one of the things about marriage is discovering that you're both sinners, right? And, uh, and that's why you need Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your marriage. But... But, you know, in, with a real person, there's pushback. There's, and, and so if marriage is not about me marrying somebody who, and, and a lot of 
a lot of the way that modern people talk about marriage is they're looking for a soulmate. And if you look behind and underneath the conversation, they're looking for somebody who will adorn and support their own particular, their, their projects around themselves. But it's not really a matter, but marriage is not about finding somebody who's going to just, just end up, in a sense, adoring you and, and allowing you to do what you want. It's, about, it's, a, it's a deep encounter, a deep, it's an invitation to a lifelong deep encounter with the reality of another person. That's what distinguishes a quest for true marriage from just being enamored with a fantasy. And in the Bible, there's this invitation not to meet yourself, although when you meet the living God, you will understand yourself. I will understand myself in a... In a in, in, there's a I, I will start to understand myself in a very true and deep manner. There's an invitation for profound, deep self-knowledge in the gospel. But at its heart, it's, a, it's an invitation to meet the other, an other, the true and living God, the creator and sustainer and the end of all things. <laughs> immense and yet immensely loving and immensely true and always completely and utterly himself. And that's the invitation to meet him. And these texts don't fit in with how we Canadians want them to fit in because it's beckoning us to a vastly different conversation than just a deeper journey into ourselves. Now, some of you might say, um, okay, George, that's sort of interesting, but one moment, George. <laughs> Look at all these bowls falling on people. <laughs> like, I don't know, George, isn't it maybe a little bit like if God has to resort to threats like this that there's something lacking in him? Well, um, that's a good question. So, so let's look a little bit further and see how the, um, how, how the text, how the text works, works itself out. Um, let's uh, read verses 4 and following. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Just sort of note that the sea had become blood like a corpse, and now this, this, the, this drinkable water, springs and rivers, they became blood. And I heard the, and just as a bit of an aside here, like in, a modern, in the modern world, who is the one um, group, at least in terms of our popular imagination, that would like it? Vampires. Not really making a joke, but it's true, right? Vampires would be excited if the rivers and the streams were filled with blood. And throughout most of the world's history, in cultures, there are dark gods and dark goddesses who exist to drink the blood of humans. <laughs> and so in a modern world, it's a world where vampires are at home. In the world of this text, when it was written, it's describing a world where dark gods and goddesses are at home. But it's profoundly unhuman, and humans can't truly live there. 
So the verse 4 again. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now there's going to be a, a change. All of the other bowls, every one of them, there'll now be a comment on the bowl. And uh, the first comment is going to come from God's perspective. And here's the comment. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord. God, the Almighty. Actually, it should literally be Lord, the God, the Almighty. True and just are your judgments. Now, this is a real surprise. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a real surprise. This is, um, uh, so the, the third bowl has come. It's now picturing a world where only dark gods and dark goddesses are at home and can roam the land. It's profoundly a place where humans don't really fit. And the comment, the first comment on this comes from angels that this shows the justice and the truth of God. It's a very, very, very puzzling reaction. It's a puzzling reaction to us. And why is it puzzling to us? Part of the reason it's so puzzling to us is that probably every single one of us, to some extent, believes that the God that exists, exists to meet my needs. I don't really think he exists to meet your needs, by the way. He just exists to meet my needs. And you're all saying, one moment, he exists to meet my needs. Sucks to be you, George. He exists to meet my needs. And, And we might not even be aware of it, that that's so deeply ingrained in our culture and in the way that we approach the texts, that it would be very interesting to see, to think, that as these, whatever the, these symboli, whatever these visions are going to actually look like when they work themselves out in history, and I, I don't know what's going to be symbolic and what's historical, and what, like, I, I don't know that. But if we remember the text, it, it will become clear to us if we live through it. And, and it's... it's um, I, I can easily re- imagine that there'll be a whole pile of people writing books on the problem of evil and why it is that God is allowing evil and we'll spend our time trying to justify the evil in the world and how it goes along with the, the existence of God. But this text is saying that what's happening here in the world's last night reveals and displays the truth and justice of God. Because you see, if if there really is a true and living God that does exist who's completely and utterly other, and if in fact our world is organized and my life is organized around such a way that I think that God only exists to meet my needs, and that can only be true if I think I'm greater than God and stronger than God, and if I am completely and utterly addicted to that belief, then I will find all of these things that are happening a profound offense. A profound offense. That's why I I put the point for this in these words, if you could put it up, Andrew. Who 
were what failed. The true and living God or a false God? Who or what failed? The true and living God or a false God? This text, by the way, um, all of chapter 16, if you wanted to sort of see a, a bit of a way that it's modeled, it's modeled on the Exodus story. If you go back and read the book of Exodus and see the, the different plagues and everything like that, and, and how uh, in Exodus God's people are protected from them, and it's a revelation of his sovereignty, and it's a revelation that the gods that the Egyptians and the Israelites themselves trusted in are shown to be completely and utterly helpless and bankrupt. And for us in our age, and, and we worship capitalism and socialism and central planning and individual planning and initiative and technology and technique and, uh, and human creativity, and, and, we, and, 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 and we worship ourselves and our own ability to manage things, and we worship our own understanding of the, of the world and the universe, that we don't really, we rarely do things that are wrong, that are our own fault, and, 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 and that we can control things, and that, that, that bad things don't happen to good people, and if, if some bad things happen to another person, it's because they're not really learning how to do things properly, but people who, who, uh, who've learned how to manage the techniques and manage the secret can do this and can do that, and we can just meditate, and, and we'll get centered. And, and, and in this entire world, all of these understandings have failed. And the text is revealing that the gods that we put our faith and trust in are failing. They failed. My ability to control myself and and, and have my own prosperity, it's all failing. And so the question is, in the text, is who's failing? The true and living God or false gods that we put our faith and trust in? And this is a surprising and shocking thought. And it's not where we thought we'd go when we began this text. We did not think that it would challenge what it is that we put our faith in and our trust in. What is it that we serve and love and obey and trust and hope in? And that it would reveal that, in fact, we maybe worship ourselves in some way and and see the world centered around us or we're just in service to us or having to bow to us or fit to us. And on top of that, we we worship the government and we worship capitalism and we worship Canadianism as if somehow Canadians have some divine right to always be prosperous or always be successful or always be better than the Americans or always be better than than the English or Europeans or or Chinese or or whatever it is. And and we have all of these things that we just sort of assume and, and love and worship and trust and hope in and we don't identify them. And this text is picturing a day when every God fails. True and living God reveals the failure of every false God. That's what the text is describing. And it's asking us, you and me, to, con- to consider. Now, some of you might say, I don't think I live by faith, George. I don't think I have gods that I worship. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the amazing race, uh, I think you can see it often in the, the, the way people pray. Not, it's a little bit hard because, you know, maybe in the, the, the bigger context, it's just they're really, they, they, do, they do see themselves as giving themselves to, to, to God who is bigger than them and, 
And, and the God who is bigger than us does ask us to bring our needs to him. And maybe if we were to see all of the film footage, that's what we would understand is going on. Maybe they've just edited to make it look like they're trying to, to rub, rub a genie in a bottle to get the genie to do something for them. It could very well be that that's what's happening with the editing of the show. You never know with a show like The Amazing Race how they're making people look. It could be completely opposite than what they really were happening in, in, in real life. But, but even if you take that Wallander episode that I began the sermon with, and, and, uh, and one of the things which is sort of a very, very sustained throughout these very, very well done, a series of nine different short BBC movies, hour and a half movies, is the, the consistent atheism of Wallander and um, the consistent idea that there is no God, that there's, you die and that's just it, which is partly why it, it and so wonderfully acted, like, why on earth would I pray? Like, why on earth would you even think that I would pray? Like, why on earth would anybody pray? But at the same time, as, as he regularly wrestles with all sorts of failures, you see that there are things that he does serve, that he, loves, that he does love, he does obey, he does trust, he does hope in, that he, he has his own very high view of himself, even as he lives selflessly, that there's a, a series of, of things which he's completely and utterly committed to. And, and the Bible here is going to suggest that we have, that, that in fact every single person lives by faith. This will start to come out in these next few verses. Uh, Verse 8. How's my time? Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And remember I said that all of the bowls from now on will always include a response. And how is it that people respond? And they cursed or blasphemed, the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Uh, The image, by the way, here um, on this seal is it's almost like um, an opposite of uh, of Pentecost. The the image is as if fire itself sort of comes down and touches people and scorches them. In Pentecost, it was like tongues that appeared like fire that was the coming of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that led forth in people... Uh, singing God's praises and shouting God's praises in the tongues of every person who was there. And now it's almost like a, a, a fell Pentecost. It's a, a, a judgment Pentecost, and, and the fire comes and scorches, and suffering rather than inclining people's hearts to search for the living God, and rather, rather than this suffering leading people to recognize that the gods that they've put their faith and trust in, that they are failing, that they are failing, that they are failing, that they are failing, the response is to, to curse and blaspheme God and not to repent. Uh, then then the, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, the center of the beast's um, authority, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Um, just sort of pause here. Uh, one of the ways, remember, I, you, you might not remember, but when we were looking at the other cycles of judgment, John could understand a contradiction just like you and me, okay? He can understand that the, the fourth bull, the sun is so bright and so powerful that some fire is scorching us, and then now all of a sudden it's dark. He can understand these things, okay? So the way for us to read it and understand it you know, I, I, I don't read that many fantasy novels, but those of you who read fantasy novels where there's a quest involved, what's one of the things that you have to do in the quest often? 
is you have to remember the words of the prophecy, right? You have to remember the words of the ancient document or what the seer said or something like that. And often what happens in quest novels, fantasy quest-type novels, is that people keep forgetting the different things, and, and so they, they, get, they get off track and they get brought, 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 brought back onto track, and that's how sort of the dynamic of the story goes. And, and, and it's the same type of thing which is happening here with the Bible. It's just really a matter of us, what will the world's last night be? I don't know. What, what parts will be symbolic and what will be literal? I don't know. What matters is remembering. <laughs> what matters is remembering. That's what matters, Okay. And, 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 and when, when it seems to have different contradictions, that's not a contradiction. It's inviting us to understand what's going on. And, and the image I used to use of, if those of you who have never met my, uh, my daughter Victoria, for instance, if there's people here who have never met my daughter Victoria, maybe uh, Louise and I would show you seven really good pictures of Victoria. And if we showed you seven different pictures of Victoria, maybe one of, one of her looking you know, very intent and focused, maybe one of her laughing, maybe one looking at her cho- one of her children, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, one of, one of her just doing a task or whatever. And if I pick seven really good pictures, if you tried to take the seven pictures and manually put them all together <laughs> to create one image, you wouldn't actually recognize Victoria at all, would you? I mean, she'd have seven noses. That would throw you off right off the bat, because in real life, she only has one, right? She'd have maybe 13 or 14 years, depending on how to do it. But what you would happen is if you look at all seven, and then if you met my daughter, Victoria, maybe even after seeing them, if you saw her in the Rito Center without me or uh, Louise, or if you saw her out of the context, you'd say, that's, that's George's daughter, Victoria. And not only would you get a, you'd, you'd be able to recognize her, you'd have a bit of a sense from seven pictures as to, to her nature and her character. And so something like that's probably going on here. How it's all going to put together, God's in control of that. I don't have to sort that out. I just have to remember the seven. <laughs> just have to remember the seven. But, but here's the point. Notice the responses now. Remember, the, the, in the third bowl, we see God's commentary on what's going on. And here we begin to see the responses of people to having, in a sense, their gods fail. The revelation of their gods completely and utterly failing. And, and what we see is this. Since every person, the fourth point, since every person lives by faith, the question I always need to ask is, who or what Am I putting my faith in? Since every person lives by faith, the question I always need to ask is, who or what am I putting my faith in? You see, faith is not a feeling. Sometimes we have faith we might feel something, but faith is not a feeling. And um, we're often not even conscious that we have faith. But faith, always has an object. It's something. Maybe it's a code. Maybe it's an understanding of the world. Maybe it's Canada. Maybe it's a series of different things. Maybe it's, it's myself. But there's something that we, that we, in a sense, an object that we put our faith and trust in and that we follow and that we live by and that helps us to understand the world. And, uh, you see, that's why um, a church should never be called a faith community. No church should ever be called a faith community because that implies that we have faith and that the rest of the world doesn't operate by a faith. Do you not think that the faculty and the administration of the Ottawa, Ottawa, University of Ottawa has faith? Do you not think that they have a certain way that they understand themselves, that they maybe trust in modernism or postmodernism, that they trust particular philosophers, 
that they trust in things being secular, that they trust in reason, and that they trust with a certain understanding of justice and right and wrong, that they have a certain type of a, a way to understand the world and order the world and things that, that they want to obey and follow that helps them to frame the world, and, and that they don't follow those things by faith, whether they're conscious and can, innate, and, and can, can list them what they are, or whether they're completely and utterly in, unconscious. Does, do, is it not, in fact, the case... That, that whether it's the University of Ottawa or the Liberal Party of Canada, the Progressive Conservative Party, or the Conservative Party of Canada, or, uh, or the people who write in the financial pages of the, uh, of the Financial Post, or the people who write in the financial pages of the Globe and Mail, or the people who write in the sports pages, is, is it not obvious that there's a series of things that they, that they understand the world by and that they live by and that they trust in and they organize their world by, that they, in fact, are people of faith? So it's not that churches are people of faith and nobody else has faith. That's a, a completely and utterly unaware way to understand the world. And so it's sad. I find it very sad when Christians fall into this unaware way of understanding the world because the Bible presents that everybody lives by faith. Everybody lives by faith. And so the question for you and me is, what, what am I putting my faith in? In fact, just as a bit of an aside, what is doubt? The Bible understands doubt as having faith in two things at the same time. And that's what doubt is. I have my faith in Jesus, but I also have my faith in myself. I also have my faith in having lots of money. I also have my faith in my pension. I also have my faith in science. I also have my faith in these other things. And doubt is having dual faith or triple faith or quadruple faith. That in fact, for many of us, if, if, or maybe our friends who seem to be losing their faith, but the question for them not is, how can I change how I'm feeling? The question might be very well is to examine, what other things in your life, in my life, am I starting to have faith in? That are now starting to, in a sense, wrestle with my faith in God, my faith in Jesus. Because we all live by faith. So, some people might say, George, so you're saying that faith is not a feeling, that faith always has an object, that we always live by faith, but isn't repentance just about a feeling? Like, isn't repentance about feeling sorry? And isn't, George, usually when you have repentance in the Bible, isn't it always about feeling sorry about sex? People often think that the only sin that Christians believe in is sins around sex, and that repentance is a feeling, but it's not. The very, the very next text ushers us into what repentance is in light of faith. Let's continue reading at, um, at, uh, at verse uh, 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, just sort of notice, that's what the bowl does. And then everything else in the text is response. Okay? What happens as a result of this water? It's a natural barrier is dried up. And what happens is a response. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. That's what the people are doing. They're gathering to fight God. What's God's comment? Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So God's response is that when you see the gods of the nations, the gods of the people being judged and show to fail, look for me coming. You know, Gandalf speaking to people, look for me coming. It's the same type of idea, look for me coming. And then it goes back in verse 16 to how it is that people are responding. We see in verse 16, and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. It's another perfect place to show that we don't know how symbolism in reality goes. Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo. The problem is that Megiddo is a, is a plain. It would be like talking about the mountain of Saskatchewan. Um, the, mount, the mountain of, of South Saskatchewan. Well, there is no mountain there. <laughs> So what does that mean? We don't know what it means. But it's going to have some, it's remembering the sign, okay? And, and so the response of the world to the gods failing are for people to gather in battle against God. And so here's the, the fifth point. We're almost done. Biblical repentance is changing the object of my faith to the person and work of Jesus. Biblical, faith, biblical repentance is changing the object of my faith to the person and work of Jesus. You see, what, what's happening here is that people don't want to give up on their faith in the gods that are failing. So they, they in a sense, gather to do battle with God. But all the way through this text, if, if you wanted to have a sort of a, a, a one-verse summary of what's going on in the text, it's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when he introduces his ministry. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the way he introduces his ministry is by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the gospel. It's Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the gospel. And all the way through this text, when it says that people don't repent, the implication is that God wants them to repent. And, and, and the way we repent is not by all of a sudden particularly feeling sorry, and it's not necessarily about feeling sorry around doing bad things sexually. That if, in fact, we always walk by faith, and faith is always serving, loving, obeying, trusting, and hoping in something, or some person, or someone, or some idea, or some system, or some ideology, or some philosophy, or some spirituality, if that's, what we're, if that's the object of our faith, repentance is turning from that and asking and calling out that we could put our faith and trust in the living God through the person and the work of Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. And, and the invitation of the text is for us to ask God, what is it that we, in fact, are putting our faith in? And, and the Bible here is not saying that we only put our faith... It's not teaching us a type of paranoia that we only put our faith and trust in Jesus, and that means that we don't trust our wives, we don't trust our friends, we never trust our boss, we never trust other drivers, uh, we never trust the government. It's not like that at all. The doctrine of creation pre- prevents us from that. It, it teaches us that what happens is that when, that, and when we put our faith and trust, our ultimate faith and trust in the living God and in, in what his son does for us on the cross, that part of what is to happen then is that is a work of healing and restoration and reformation and renewal within us that God orders our faith. I don't put my highest faith in my wife. She shouldn't put her highest faith in me. If 
but I should have a proper faith in my wife in light of my faith in God. I should have a proper faith and respect towards government in light of my higher faith in God through the person and work of Jesus. Um, This is not just an invitation for us to all do it by ourselves, but God himself has to do something. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's just look very quickly at one more verse. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. The final point. When I walk by faith in the one who said, It is finished, I can look forward with hope to the words, it is done. When I walk by faith in the one who said, it is finished, I can look forward with hope to the words, it is done. uh, These final words are a clear echo of what Jesus says from the cross as he's about to die. And he says on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. Um, my, my wife and I have um, had an offer. To, we put an offer in another house, and we bought it. Uh, you can pray for us that we can get our, house, our current house ready, and it will sell in time, taking a, a step of faith. And a part of the reason I'm a bit coughing is yesterday uh, we had a, a van, and we, we have to declutter our house and, uh, and get rid of some stuff and put some stuff so it will show well into a storage unit. And so we've been going through books and dusty things like that. So I had a lot, of, a lot of dust yesterday, and I'm a bit coughing as a result of it. And um, the, the storage unit place that I was going to, uh, they have a, a free van that they'll lend, lend you uh, if you're going to move stuff into their storage unit. And we had it from 1 till, till 7. And so I was there at 1 o'clock, and the van didn't come, the van didn't come, the van didn't come, the van didn't come. And in fact, it came an hour late. <laughs> hour late. And in fact, it was very, very interesting that the couple who brought the van late, they didn't say they were sorry. You know, sucks to be you. <laughs> you had to sit there and wait in the car for an hour, and they didn't say they were sorry, nothing. Um, so the, the man who was responsible for this, he apologized to me. And uh, I said, well, it's not your fault. Nothing you could do about it. And, uh, and then he said something which is quite quite remarkable, which helps us to understand what Jesus does for us in the cross. See, it's not just purely a matter of our putting a faith in Jesus, right? it's just purely by our own effort, train, changing from putting our faith in something else to putting our faith in Jesus. God still, Jesus does something. He accomplishes something for us because every time there's something that we do that's wrong, every time that we do something that there's, that's wrong, there's a type of debt, and that debt, in a sense, has to be dealt with. It has to be absorbed. And, and the, the, these people having wronged me, there, there was, in a sense, I'm, I'm out an hour. I'm out an hour. And, and that hour, in fact, in our case, it, it would have meant a, a really big thing for us. It meant one whole extra segment of us trying to get our house decluttered would have just been completely and utterly gone. And, and, uh, and, and the man says to me, listen, you've been really patient, and I'm, I'll, I'll take that hour into myself. And I'll come an hour later so you can have the full length of time. And in a sense, justice is restored. 
And there's a type of satisfaction because that man absorbs the cost of the wrongdoing of the first couple. And all evil is something like that. And what Jesus does for us on the cross is absorbs the consequences of our wrongdoing. He has lived a complete and utter perfect and sinless life, and he absorbs the cost of it. And what we hear Jesus say on the cross is, it is finished, and then he dies. He absorbs the cost so that we can be reconciled to God. And so it's not just a matter of me still being completely in control, and I can now switch the object to my faith. God himself does something to open the possibility that I very weakly, not even really aware of all that is that I've done that keeps God at a distance and all it is that I've done that harm God and hard others. And, and I, I'm completely and utterly oblivious of, of, of a whole pile of it and I, I make myself oblivious, but I, I recognize that there's a, a need not only to have a faith and trust in the living God, but that there has to be some type of a, of a dealing with myself. And, and Jesus, when he says, it is finished, that is him saying that I have dealt with it on the cross for And so it is that when I hear God say, it is done, I know that it is finished, that everything that I've done that has kept me from God, that has been paid with and dealt with by the person of Jesus. Please stand. There's no better time than today to uh, ask the Father to order your faith. There's no better time than today to begin to put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. There's no better time than today to realize that part of the reason that God feels distant isn't that he is distant, but that you've been putting your faith and trust in all sorts of other things other than him. So I'm going to say a short prayer, and if God's Holy Spirit is convicting you to pray to God in response to Revelation 16, if the Holy Spirit is pressing into you to do that, My words can just be one way to help you respond. And so I'll say a couple of words, and then I'll pause, and you can say them silently. don't have to say them out loud. As your response to God in right of Revelation 16. Dear God, I do not always recognize what I put my faith in instead of you. I am truly sorry. I put my faith in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. Please order my faith so he is my highest and deepest hope. Please pour out your Holy Spirit upon me to make me yours forever. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.